In a state addicted to the game of basketball, and in a city desperate for a champion, a small all-black high school navigates the tumultuous racial atmosphere of 1955 America to give Naptown the team they've been dreaming of. This is Hoosier Addicts, a love letter to Indianapolis. Broadcasting to you from the annals of time and space, Join us as we navigate the twisting and turning roads of history and explore places that represent our past and shape our future. Welcome to DeLorean Nights. Old New York may have its subway with its famous Rum Row Trust. And old Finland with its nerm runs our runners into dust. But where candle lights are gleaming through the sycamores afar, every son of Indiana shoots his basket like a star. Grantland Rice, back in 1925. On this episode, we're going to take a trip to Indiana and its state capital of Indianapolis, also known as the Crossroads of America or Naptown. We won't get into the origins of these nicknames or Indiana's nickname of the Hoosier State or Hoosier Land as it's more commonly referred to as. But throughout history, this Midwestern state was primarily known for its farmlands and for its love affair with the game of basketball. Basketball means something very different in Indiana, more so than the rest of the country. And although it wasn't invented here, Indiana quickly adopted it as its own. And it became not even the parents, but the tiger mom of basketball, I think is the best way to describe their relationship. Hoosier citizens uh, were from the get-go and remain addicted to the sport of basketball, especially on its high school level. But before we dive into that, we'll examine the blueprints or setup of this story. We'll explore the history of Indiana's relationship with the sport, as well as the social climate of the time period. So let's hop into the DeLorean gun it to 88, and go all the way back to the year 1892. This is a quick pit stop. We won't be here long, but it's an important blueprint to our story. So 1892. This was the year in which the sport of basketball made its first appearance in Indiana. The original 13 rules of the game were scripted the previous year by a Canadian YMCA instructor living in Massachusetts. He was looking to keep his students active in the winter months, so he devised a simple game he referred to as basketball. He had many protégés, or other YMCA's instructors, who took a liking to the game, and they soon ventured out to spread the game to their own hometowns. They would become a sort of basketball apostles, and they stored copies of these rules under their Bibles, and they trekked all across the Midwest. One of them landed in a tiny rural town of Crawfordsville, Indiana. There they set up shop and put two iron rims that were forged by local blacksmiths and they were bolted to the walls and coffee bags were draped underneath these rims to serve as nets. This location would become known as the Cradle of Basketball and this game would soon spread like wildfire throughout the state. So why Indiana? Why was it so popular here? Well, it was a perfect sport for a state that was immersed in agriculture. The harvest took up most of the fall, while the spring was for planting season. That left the barren, freezing Indiana winters as the only downtime for leisurely activity. So this match with basketball and indoor sport was perfect. Indiana and basketball were soulmates, and it was an instant hit. There's an article in the Indianapolis Star that was written several years ago about the Hoosier Land's love affair with basketball, and uh, I'll quote this passage. Quote, they played in skating rinks in Madison, on dirt fields in Martinsville, on the driveway of a lumberyard in Carmel. There are accounts of others pushing church pews against the wall and dragging jet desks from the schoolhouses into the snow, end quote. So that's the origin of basketball and why it began in Indiana. So we'll jump back into the DeLorean quickly and fast forward another 30 years to the 1920s.
By this time, basketball was ingrained in all aspects of Indiana society. It was a source of pride amongst its citizens, and it was firmly planted into their DNA and daily routine. A high school state tournament was the year's biggest event, and each year the number of schools participating grew exponentially. It was during this time when the game's inventor, Dr. Naismith, the Canadian YMCA instructor we previously mentioned, he made his pilgrimage to Indiana to attend the state championship game. And while among the 15,000 enthralled fans at the game, he admitted Indiana was the true parent of the sport and center of its action. Local towns soon rushed to build expansive gyms, often with a capacity greater than their population. In 1929, the town of Muncie, one of the early dynasties of basketball, held a town hall meeting to approve the year's budget. The first item up on the budget, $100,000 for a 7,500-seat basketball field house. This passed unanimously. The second item up, $300 allocated for a town librarian. This was declined. The setup of the state tournament also added to the legend of Indiana high school basketball. While other states divided their schools by size, or what is known as classes, Indiana remained a single-class tournament that is one state champion for the entire state. This allowed schools to play their neighbors no matter the difference in enrollment. The winner would move on to face their next closest opponent, and so on and so forth until one champion emerged. And this created a snowball effect of hoops hysteria, as local townspeople followed the progression of the tournament to its later rounds. Former players and residents recall filling out the Indiana State Tournament bracket every year in the newspaper. This is similar to how we fill out the NCAA March Madness bracket, except by the middle of the century there were over 700 schools uh, written into the bracket. Uh, this single-class tournament also opened the door for some epic David and Goliath matchups, as tiny farm schools with minuscule enrollments would match up with regional powerhouses. This was the Hoosier Land version of Cinderella, and it would culminate in 1954 with the Milan Miracle. Milan, a small farm town with barely 150 students, goes on a historic run to capture the state tournament title, the smallest town to ever to win this crown, and they did so in such dramatic fashion that it's almost written out of a storybook. A game-winning jumper at the buzzer, the shot heard around the state, and eventually the shot heard around the country. Does sound familiar? Because it is. This is the Hollywood classic movie Hoosiers, and this is how most people know Indiana basketball. The final shot of that state championship game was recreated in the movie Hoosiers, and actually there was significant truth to it. This scene in particular is recited by most sports fans and reenacted in their driveways and local gyms. In this climactic scene, a timeout is called in the final seconds of the game. Hickory, which is Milan in real life, had come storming back after being down the entire game. Their furious rally had culminated with a critical defensive stop with only seconds to go. Gene Hackman, the head coach, calls a timeout. With his team down one and with the ball, he sets up a play for the final shot. The team's star player, Jimmy Chitwood, would be used as a decoy drawing the defense to him while his teammate would free himself for the real last shot. But something's wrong. The players hang their heads and avoid eye contact with Coach Dale. Coach screams over the roaring crowd, What's the matter with you guys? No one answers. The players remain silent. His gaze meets Jimmy Chitwood. Jimmy, who barely speaks throughout the entire movie, looks right back at him. In an icy, confident tone, he utters those three famous words, I'll make it. Coaches swayed. He changes the play, spreads the floor, isolates Jimmy with his defender. Jimmy sets up his man, takes two hard dribbles to the rim, and pulls up as the clock winds down. He launches his jumper over the outstretched hands of his defender. The entire arena holds their breath. Both players and fans watch 
helpless as the ball spins toward the basket. The buzzer sounds and the ball drops straight through the net. Ball game, pandemonium across Indiana. The miracle has culminated. Goliath has been slain. Dennis Hopper dances around in a rehab clinic, screaming over the radio broadcast. He keeps muttering to himself, no school this small has ever won a state championship. In reality, all of Indiana did celebrate. Bobby Plump, the star player who made the shot heard around the state, had grown up playing with his teammates since childhood in the small town of Milan. Now his team was famous everywhere. They were paraded to Monument Circle in downtown Indianapolis, where the celebration continued throughout the night, and they were joined by basketball fans throughout the state. Still to this day in Milan, a water tower marks the event, sporting the headline, State Champions 1954. While it may seem that the Milan miracle and the Hoosiers film that inspired it is the perfect Indiana story, it's possible that we missed out on an even better one. One of the teams they defeated on their march to Indiana folklore would actually become a greater underdog. They would face even more insurmountable odds and capture the hope and dreams of an entire city and class of oppressed, downtrodden, and segregated citizens. As what typically happens with history, especially American history, the story was skewed by Hollywood and it was manipulated through the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia. While Hoosiers does accurately portray the passion and atmosphere of Indiana high school basketball during its quote-unquote golden age, the narrative of the final game can be misleading. Author Randy Roberts describes the issue that many take with the movie Hoosiers and how it portrays the final game. And so you know, the name Milan is not used in the movie, it's replaced with the name Hickory, so that's who we're referring to. So, quote, The film asserts that literal hickory is the best of America, a place where rural values cling tenaciously. The city is the lurking evil in this barbershop quartet world. Represented by South Bend Central, the team the Hickory Huskers confront in the state finals. It is big, loud, ethnic, and most of all, black. South Bend's players wear newer uniforms. They run faster, they jump higher, and appear stronger but the Hickory players are on a mission. Let's win this one for all the small schools that never had a chance to get here, says one player." End quote. What was happening here is the movie mistakenly portrays the racial attitudes at the time it was filmed rather than the time the story took place. By the 1980s, it was a common conception that African Americans were superior on the court. Roberts recalls a 1997 Sports Illustrated headline pondering the question, Whatever happened to the white athlete? Another infamous example of this attitude is when sports analyst Jimmy the Greek Snyder gave an interview on national television. In the interview, he says, quote, The black is the better athlete to begin with because he's been bred that way. End quote. The Greek continues to claim that this goes all the way back to the Civil War when slave owners would breed their best slaves. He was obviously fired for these comments, but there's no doubt that he wasn't the only person that felt this way. But this attitude about the superiority of African-American athletes did not exist in the 1950s. As you can likely guess, it was the opposite. Many people felt that African-American athletes were inferior, primarily because of the mental aspects of the game. Black athletes were considered foot soldiers, but never generals. The general attitude toward African-Americans were that they had a penchant for laziness and low intelligence as well. Wisdom went that only teams led by white players could truly master the intricacies, subtleties, and rhythms of the game. Furthermore, since African-American athletes were excluded from participation for so many years, there were just few of them. For most of us, the image in our minds of Indiana basketball comes exclusively from the movie Hoosiers. However, in reality, the smaller farm schools were not the biggest underdog. In reality, the roles were reversed. The team to overcome the greatest obstacles during this time period was the team that Milan defeated on their way to the finals. This was a team that hailed from the dreaded city. This was a team that consisted entirely of the inferior race.
Despite the relatively innocent love affair with basketball in the 1920s, Indiana was a dangerous place to live for many of its citizens. It's reported that over 20% of the eligible population were members of the Klan, that is the Ku Klux Klan, and in some counties as much as 40% of the population were members. And it wasn't just the sheer number of members, but these members often ascended to high position of power throughout the government, from local town councils all the way to the state governor's office. With this power and some mob-like scare tactics, the Klan proceeded to enact Jim Crow into every facet of Indiana life. One of their leaders, and perhaps the most powerful person in Indiana at this time, was a man named D.C. Stevenson. He would become the Grand Dragon of the Indiana State Chapter of the Klan, and this would also make him rich and famous during his reign. He would arrive to speaking engagements by private planes and be wearing expensive suits. His speeches were attended by over 200,000 people, a record at the time and everyone came to see his message of protecting the soul of America from outside influence. Indiana was not just a Klan state, but it was the Klan state. And offshoots of the Klan, groups such as the White Citizens Protective League, would help further push this agenda forward. One prime example of this agenda is a zoning ordinance that was put in place to prevent any purchase of homes that would create a mixed race situation. For an African-American to purchase a home in a white neighborhood, they would have to obtain the written support of most of their neighbors. Although this law was eventually determined to be unconstitutional, it still reflects the attitude of the population. The Klan would find alternative means to ensure that Indiana would remain submerged in segregation. Crosses would be burned on the lawns of their neighbors, guns would be fired in black neighborhoods to scare the people out of voting, and it was under this atmosphere of fear and segregation and racism that the subject of this story would be forged. As people fled from the South during the Great Migration, Indianapolis was one of the destinations flooded by these social refugees. Industries and factories in northern cities were showing a willingness to hire African-American workers, and in these cities, the African-American population would surge. Indianapolis promoted their motto as the crossroads of America and a place for opportunity. So many, many African-Americans flocked to Indianapolis during this time period. And by the 1920s, the Klan believed that Indianapolis had been invaded and that there was nothing they could do about the city, but they would do everything in their means to prevent this from happening in the suburbs. By 1927, the city school board determined that there was a need for a fully black high school. They did this in order to prevent African Americans from going to high school with everyone else. The creation of this school cemented Jim Crow in Indianapolis and cut off the black community from any other options for education. The NAACP naturally opposed this, as everyone knows that separate but equal never actually means equal. They fought hard to reverse this decision, but to no avail. However, they did manage a small emblematic victory in this fight. They were given the rights to name the school, and they chose the name Crispus Attucks, which who was one of the heroes and martyrs of the American Revolution. We don't want to get too off topic here, but if you can look into the history of Crispus Attucks and his relationship with American history, it's, it's fascinating and very educational. The school was built on the west side of Indianapolis, in an area commonly referred to as Frog Island. It was a poor and overcrowded African-American neighborhood. Most houses in Frog Island did not have heat, indoor plumbing, or electricity. And it was in Frog Island that the Lockfield Gardens, the first public housing complex in Indianapolis, would be built. It contained all the modern amenities the people of Frog Island could ever desire. It even had a basketball court, which we'll get to later and dissecting through Frog Island was Indiana Avenue. This was the cultural and commercial heart of the African-American Indianapolis. It would be lined with theaters, shops, nightclubs, jazz clubs, and any and all successful businesses could be found on Indiana Avenue. The West Side was basically the world to Frog Island inhabitants. They didn't travel to other parts of the city, as they were either weren't welcome or they didn't have the means or desire. To me, the most inspirational aspect of the heroes of Crispus Attucks 
was that despite the continual disadvantages thrown at them, they were always able to turn these disadvantages into strengths. So as this community saw their opportunities for education plummet with the decision to build Christmas Attics, they did their best to make the school a top-of-the-line education. Opportunities weren't just scarce for students at this time, but they were for African-American educators as well. That's why they were able to hire the best educators in the state. The faculty of Crispus Attics was full of teachers with PhDs and master's degrees and people who brought talent, passion, and enthusiasm for education to the school. These educators would make sure that their students would succeed. And while the school was built as a symbol of segregation and racism, its leaders were able to turn this into a source of pride and an atmosphere of acceptance and perseverance. The same can be said for the Crispus Attucks basketball team. And another example of how Attucks turned a disadvantage into a strength, because the African American community in Indianapolis had so few choices for schools, Attucks was flooded with basketball talent as well. And as you can guess, many other schools were initially hesitant to play against Attucks. Fortunately, the hatred of the Klan was multifaceted. Catholic schools were also blacklisted as enemies, and they were equally desperate to schedule games. So playing the Catholic schools, Attucks was slowly able to demonstrate their talent, and as they did this, their legend grew. Their games became events. Because of segregation, many townspeople in rural communities would flock to the gym on game night to get a look at the Attucks players, primarily out of sheer curiosity. This is another example of how Attucks turns disadvantages into strengths. Soon they became accustomed to playing in front of large and often hostile crowds. They grew acclimated to the bright lights and learned to be comfortable in big games. City budgeting had failed to give addicts an adequate gym to hold fans, so they had to play their games at their opponent's gyms or at local Butler University if it was available. Actually, at one point in time, they did get funding for a gym, but it was much too small for their fan base. And at their first and only home game, the crowd that amassed outside, unable to get in, grew hostile and threw bricks through the windows of the gym. The game was canceled and that was the last time they had a home game. But because of this, they became hardened warriors in enemy territory. They would bus in, play their game, pack a meal, and eat it on the way home. They wouldn't dare stop to eat in places that they weren't welcome. A famous saying goes that the roughest seas make the best sailors. And this was the Crispus Attucks basketball team to a T. No home gym, they learned to thrive on the road. They would play anyone, anywhere, and anytime. While other teams could rely on excuses for poor play, such as a tough atmosphere, a long travel, tired legs from two games in two days, Attucks didn't have such luxuries. Now let's jump back into the DeLorean one more time and fast forward to the 1950s. We now have a pretty good understanding of Indiana's obsessive relationship with basketball and their complicated relationship with race and the Jim Crow atmosphere that still existed during this time period. We'll park it here for the remainder of our story. Included in the aforementioned list of masterful educators employed at Crispus was basketball coach Ray Crow. Coach Crow grew up in a white Indiana farm town during the Klan's reign of terror back in the early 1920s. He often saw Klansmen walking around town in uniform. However, his realization of his place in society was a slow process. He naturally learned where he was welcome and where he wasn't. Luckily, one such welcoming place was in the gym. His coach was a friendly man that welcomed him on the squad. Crow recalls how he learned to stand up for himself on the court, particularly against white opponents. He remembers one incident in which he was getting muscled around by a white player. His coach called him over and bluntly stated to him, I don't care what color he is, if you don't stand up for yourself, you'll be on the bench next to me. This was music to Crow's ears. He entered the game and asserted himself and soon his career took off. And he grew up not only to be a star athlete, but also a scholar student as well. He started as an assistant coach at Attucks in 1948, and outwardly he appeared to play the role his superiors wanted him to play. As an assistant coach, he was quiet, polite, and respectful. And these were the priorities, and their emphasis often overlapped into the team's play. The head coach had a vision to promote themselves and their team to the best of their ability as model citizens. 
He believed this was the true path to social harmony. Unfortunately, Crow saw that the relentless focus on this often impacted their ability to win. Players selected for the squad were often those that fit this mold of being respectful and not ruffling any feathers, rather than those who could provide the best chance to win. Crow grew frustrated that the team's true potential was not being realized on the court. Fortunately, by 1951, the head coach retired and Crow was given the job. And now that he had the keys to the Jeep, he could hit the gas pedal as much as he desired. Upon taking the reins, the format of the team would soon change. Many of his players were from the poorer parts of Frog Island, and many of them were migrants from the South. Some were so poor he had trouble keeping them in school. He often had to talk to parents and emphasize the importance of education as their only way out of poverty. He purchased some of his players essential things like socks and underwear. He often fed players who were hungry and not getting enough food at home. But he also noticed that these poorer kids often played with a passion and an urgency that others did not. His teams began to win immediately. They ran the fast break to perfection, devastating opponents with their speed. They played suffocating and pressing defense. Schools used to methodically running their half-court offense and slowing the game down were simply overwhelmed. Attic's basketball became a staple of the community and a source of pride. They were winning, winning big, and winning with an exhilarating style. Under Coach Crow, they grew from a good team to a perennial power and one of the city's best. He subtly transitioned the attitude and identity of his program. While he would still demand their best behavior, there would be no confusion as to their ultimate goal. He believed his team could be the best in the state, and he wouldn't let them settle for less. Their first taste of true success came in 1952. Attic's star player, a little guard named Flap Robertson, drilled a jumper at the buzzer to give Attic's their first trip to the state semifinals. The origin of Flat's nickname is still up for debate. Some claim it was because of his shoes. As a poor kid from Frog Island, his soles would often break and would flap in the wind while he ran. His brother claims that it was the exaggerated motion of his follow-through when he shot the ball. It would flap out. But I like to believe the simple explanation is that he was called Flap because of his mouth. Flap was an example of Coach Crow's transition from a team content to be on their best behavior and happy to be allowed to play with the white schools to a team expecting to win every time they stepped on the court. Flap had a flair and a star quality about him, an air of confidence. His dramatic jump shot would ignite a powder keg of basketball fever all along the west side. Attic's success had previously garnered a strong and passionate following, but after that shot, there was an optimism and confidence that had never been there before. Flap says that a bunch of people told him that their relatives had heart attacks watching his game. One urban legend was that a woman went into labor during that semifinal game. And Flap's brother remembers hearing cheers and honking horns throughout Frog Island and up and down Indiana Avenue when his shot went down. A victory chant began to echo in the stands once the outcome of the game was in hand. It was a symbolic victory cigar. And I'm not going to sing it, but if you wait until the end of the story, there'll be a surprise for you. Anyway, the chorus of the victory chant would go, They think they're rough. They think they're tough. They could beat everybody, but they can't beat us. This would become to be known as the crazy song, and it would soon reverberate throughout the rafters of gyms all over the state of Indiana. But unfortunately that year, Flap Robertson's squad fell short in the state semis. They ran into another force working against them, and what had become a regular occurrence for Crispus Addicts, the officiating always seemed to heavily favor their opponent. Tied late, Addicts gets a steal and a breakaway. They get hacked from behind on a layup. Only the ref signals jump ball instead of a foul. But Addicts wins the jump, regaining possession. On that possession, an Addicts player drives to the hoop. Upon gathering himself for another layup attempt, he's pummeled by two defenders on each side of him. He's sent crashing to the floor along with the two defenders. He picks himself up only to see the ref pointing at him. Offensive foul on Addicts. Free throws are awarded to the opponent, who proceeds to drill them and ice the game. Addicts were certain that they were the better team, yet they would still end up on the wrong side of the scoreboard. Players would walk off the court for the last time in their career with a broken heart. Their dreams were snatched from underneath them by forces out of their control. 
This game was a perfect example of when officiating got so ridiculous that local newspapers would run headlines describing the robberies and atrocities the writers witnessed. However, there were nefarious roots to this pattern of inconsistent officiating, and these roots pointed back to Jim Crow, Indiana. The Indiana State League of Officials did not accept a single black applicant throughout the 1950s. Attucks was consistently plagued with phantom fouls and tight whistles that didn't seem to be equally distributed. Their better players always found themselves battling foul trouble. On one occasion, a star player recalls being whistled for his fifth and final foul in the first half of the game. A few minutes later, while he was already sitting on the bench, the refs halted the action with another foul call, and possibly it was on him, his sixth foul, even though he wasn't even in the game at the time. It was so absurd that he couldn't do anything but laugh and quip about how the refs just wanted to make sure he was out of the game. Even today, most teams have a feeling that they're being tr treated unfairly by the referees, but uh, under this atmosphere, it must have been dialed up to an 11 and very difficult to deal with. But uh, as in, in typical addicts fashion, this was another obstacle that they turned into a strength. Because they weren't getting any calls, they learned to be so good that the refs had little impact on the outcome of the game. Get him up early and right at the tip, and the ref would be taken out of the game, Coach Crow would tell his team. They called this method 10 for the refs. The first 10 points they would score would be to make sure that the refs couldn't have an effect on the game. And despite all of this animosity, the continuous blown calls against them, the jeers and gazes from unaccepting spectators, through it all, neither player nor coach ever lost their cool. No technical fouls were ever assessed, Coach Crow was never thrown out of a game, and neither was one of his players. They were held to an impossible standard, and they lived up to it, and then some. Like many of the first athletes to break the color barrier, they were held to a standard so high that it would have melted most people. Bigots and governmental forces of Jim Crow were looking for any sliver of an excuse to discard them and offer proof of what they believed to be a violent and inferior nature. Any lapse in judgment by a player or coach, or even their fans, no matter how minuscule, could start to bring everything they fought for crumbling down. While Coach Crow maintained this masterful control of his program, he couldn't always control the entire west side of Indianapolis. In addition to the existing racial conditions and the quote-unquote normal basketball hysteria of the 1950s, there were some concerning incidents off the court that heightened the tension to a new level. Like any other major metropolitan area, the west side of Indianapolis and Indiana Avenue had its own share of nightclubs, dive bars, and pool halls. Frequenting these nocturnal dens were your standard lineup of hustlers, gamblers, and other nefarious characters. And because, once again, this was Indiana, a lot of the gambling action revolved around high school basketball. There were incidents of addicts' opponents being threatened before a game. A future opponent would be walking home from practice, and he'd be approached by several men. Don't play too well against addicts, they warned. A knife would be brandished. But Attucks wasn't exempt from this pressure themselves. Coach Crow received threats, as did several of his players. These incidents would headline the newspapers, and local law enforcement would respond severely. They went up and down Indiana Avenue, clearing out any storefront they deemed to contain dubious characters. Racial prejudice was rampant during these raids. And while the overt threats of violence eventually died down, the danger lingered under the surface throughout the coming seasons. This only added to the intensity and insanity that was Indiana basketball, and the temperature of the addict's fever would rise a few degrees higher. Despite the heartbreaking loss of the Flap Robertson squad in 1952, Coach Crow's future was about to get more promising. Absorbing that historic season was Flap's younger brother. While watching his hero big brother star at Attucks, he had his first taste of Indiana basketball at its highest level, and he was instantly hooked. He would recall his feelings after seeing his big brother Flap's legendary shot. Quote, Things would never be the same again for me. I knew it. For the first time, a candle of hope flickered inside my heart. End quote. At a young age, his destiny had been presented to him, and he would prepare accordingly. By his sophomore year in high school, he would be Naptown's greatest hope for a championship, and he would become the player every coach dreams of, but very few ever have the privilege of coaching. He was a diamond in the rough. His name was Oscar, and he was the embodiment of Indiana basketball. 
The Robertson family was among the millions of southern refugees of the Great Migration, and they settled into Indianapolis's Frog Island, a slum neighborhood on the west side where Crispus Attucks resided. Most places in Frog Island did not have heat, electricity, or running water. Oscar and Flap's family was so poor that they didn't even own a basketball. However, that didn't stop him or his brothers, as they tied together rags into the best spherical shape they could. Sometimes an old sock stuffed with newspapers would have to do. They latched a peach basket to a tree and that served as their hoop. To get in some real practice, Oscar would often go to the nearby court at the Lockfield Gardens, the first government housing complex in the city. The dusty court had iron rims and was always filled with players. He would feverishly get up shots and dribbling between games since that was the only time he could get the hold of a ball. But that desperation to even hold a basketball for a few glorious seconds would soon change. Oscar recalls a pivotal moment in his life, one that he refers to as the Christmas miracle. At some point in middle school, he opened a present from his mother Christmas morning and couldn't believe his eyes. Staring back at him was a basketball, his very own basketball. A lady his mom cleaned for gave it to her, saying that she was going to get her son a new one anyway. Oscar would never let this ball leave his sight and he would spend countless hours at the Lockfield Garden Hoops, shooting and practicing until all hours of the night. Lockfield residents would often call the cops on him, and a local officer remembers chasing Oscar out, often at three in the morning. The officer tells a story about how he used to fire his BB gun at the backboard, and Oscar would be sent sprinting home. Oscar was introverted and painfully shy in his early high school years, yet legends soon swirled around him. There was something about the way he played, there was a poise and maturity to his game. Coach Crow first took notice back in Oscar's 8th grade year. Even his 8th grade city championship was packed to the rafters, and as I keep repeating, since this is Indiana basketball, it's at a different level. And during that game, most of the players showed their young age, but not Oscar. Besides his talents, Coach Crow took note of his natural leadership ability and his high intelligence on the court. As early as his sophomore year, even casual observers began to take note of Oscar's star potential. Not only did he make varsity, but he was soon starting games. And despite his quiet nature, he was always observing and learning, a quality that would soon separate him from the other great players around him. But despite this intelligence and perceptiveness, a young Oscar would require a harsh lesson on the social dynamic of Indiana. Having grown up in the segregated city, he didn't have much interaction with white people, since he stayed on the west side and they avoided it. The first time he tried to take a crosstown bus for a game, a knife was pulled on him. The crowds at the away games, and remember they were all away games, would gawk and stare at him, often out of sheer curiosity. A few racial slurs were hurled his way. He would also become quickly accustomed to the skewed officiating style of referees during Attic's games. And though he began the season as a fresh-faced, innocent kid, he would soon become a hardened veteran. He was even on the receiving end of the threat of local gamblers. There was a mysterious phone call one night before a big game. A voice on the other line warned him not to play too well tomorrow, since that person had money on the other guys. Oscar abruptly told this mystery man to go to hell and hung up the phone. His dad asked who was on the other line. Oscar shrugged. No one important, he said. That was Oscar. During the peak of these gambling threats, the FBI and police would often pack the gym alongside the screaming fans in attendance. More times than not, Oscar was the only player not rattled by the amplified danger. Someone once described him as having the, quote, mind of an engineer and the heart of an assassin, end quote. He had an endless array of tools on the court. He was the size of a forward, but could handle like a guard. He had the visions to find easy baskets for his teammates, but his own scoring ability would leave everyone envious. As Oscar grew to stardom as a sophomore, Attucks was shaping into form and rolling their opponents. But never far away, misfortune would strike again. Three of their best forwards would go down with knee injuries. But in typical Attucks fashion, they would turn this tough break into another strength. This is also testament to Coach Crow's acumen. He retooled the offense to play a faster, guard-heavy style. What is common in today's game was revolutionary at the time, and this style was perfect fit for Oscar. It cleared the lane and gave him all the room to operate he needed. 
On defense, they pressed, exhausting and wearing down their opponents. Addox rolled into the 1954 state tournament riding a strong winning streak. The city was alive with school spirit. The local paper named the Indianapolis Recorder, which was the resident voice of black Indianapolis, had advertisements filled with well-wishers, most of them the local businesses along Indiana Avenue. I'll read a few of these because they're great. Jack's upholstery store took out a full-page ad, quote, Roll you tigers roll. Sperling Truck Company took out a full-page ad as well. Come on, addicts, load them up, haul them away. We're pulling for you all the way. The state tournament hopefuls descended on Butler Fieldhouse, and one by one they began to fall to mighty addicts. The recorder wrote optimistically about possible improvement of racial relations resulting from a deep tournament run by the Tigers. Perhaps addicts would be embraced by all of Indianapolis's people. After all, no city school had been named champion since the tournament's inception. It was referred to as a curse or a 40-year nightmare and the kids from the west side were Naftown's best chance to break through. Here's where, unfortunately, Addicts becomes merely a footnote in someone else's story. The tiny farm town of Milan, the famed Cinderella of Hoosierland, took down Addicts in the semifinals, en route to their legendary jumper heard around the world to win a state championship nights later. Milan star Bobby Plump often repeats a story that occurred during the lead-up of the game versus Addicts, at a diner, a man came up to the team with some encouragement. You go out and beat those. And you know the word that he used, uh, which I will not repeat. The city hadn't quite galvanized against Addicts, and Addicts had just fallen short again. But beyond the heartbreak of another late season loss, there was some good news. Oscar Robertson was only a sophomore. The day after the game, he could be found on the playground, quietly working on his game. Over the summer, he traveled south to visit family. A steady diet of rich southern meals and hard days work on his grandparents' farm, he'd come back stronger and taller. Puberty did some significant work as well. When fall came around, fans watched him practice back at Lockfield Gardens. As his countless jumpers found the bottom of the net over and over again, the West Side began to dream about the 1955 Attic Squad, led by superstar Oscar Robinson, another year bigger, better, and hungrier. So now we've reached 1955, ironically the same year Marty McFly goes back in time. In true American history, it remains a pivotal moment. It's a year filled with landmark events and society-shaking moments. Of these moments was the Brown vs. Board of Education case. Segregated schools were declared unconstitutional. However, as we know, it would take many years for this decision to reverberate and be enforced throughout America. Many of the heroes in this story would continue to battle Jim Crow for most of their lives. This was also the same year that Rosa Parks took her ride into history and initiated the Freedom Riders. The pillars of society were beginning to shake to their core, and Crispus Attucks would play a role in this shaking. The 1955 Attucks team was a freight train from the very start, playing their quote-unquote home games at Butler Fieldhouse whenever possible, and traveling throughout the countryside to play anyone anywhere they were blowing teams out, and the crazy song was being sung earlier than ever as their leads quickly became insurmountable. This success was a culmination of Oscar's budding as a superstar, along with the strong plays of his teammates, and most importantly, the rapport between them. They vibed perfectly on and off the court. They shared in their hardships, as most of them were Southerners and battled poverty in their new homes along Canal Avenue and Prague Island. Oscar was their leader and made everyone on the court better but they weren't slouches themselves. There's one example of Oscar fouling out at the end of a close game. Instead of worrying, Coach Crow acted as if nothing significant had taken place. He put in another player and continued coaching as usual. The team rallied and won by a comfortable margin. Addicts surged through the season and amassed an undefeated record of 14-0. The first stumble of the season would come in an away game at a town called Connorsville. The description of this game is so fun and a perfect example of the insanity of Indiana high school basketball. Being home to a tiny gym, the Connersville faithful packed over 2,000 people into it, well over capacity. They were hoping for one bright spot of beating the Attic's powerhouse in an otherwise disappointing season. With the bleachers packed to the brim, fans outside the stadium were ushered to the auditorium to listen to the radio broadcast of the game. The freezing Indiana winner was in full fury 
so the boilers inside the gym were firing. This manufactured heat, along with the overcrowded gym filled with screaming fans spewing hot air and the players running around the court, turned the gym quickly into a literal furnace. At halftime, someone decided to open the doors to let the outside air cool everyone down. This was a horrible idea, as it created some significant condensation. To make matters worse, the gym was built over a swimming pool, apparently. When the teams tipped off for the second half, they may as well have been playing on an ice rink. It was as much of a challenge to keep their footing as it was to score. Despite making a valiant effort of it, Addicts dropped their first game of the season by one point. I do have to note there is a story of good sportsmanship surrounding this game. It was reported that despite the limited seating, Connersville fans voluntarily relinquished an area of the bleachers for the Addicts faithful that made the trip. And despite the ridiculous circumstance surrounding this playing environment, Coach Crow made no excuses and used the loss to fuel his players and further push them to greatness. Longer practices, more conditioning, more of a chip on their shoulder. They started another winning streak and came roaring into the 1955 state tournament. Local beat writers and fans were confident that they were among the best. The only real threat posed to them was the Indiana powerhouse and historical dynasty Muncie Central, winner of four state titles. They were the squad that lost at the buzzer in the Milan Miracle. And despite that heartbreak, their fans took solace in that the core of their team was returning, and they believed they had unfinished business. Both teams cruised through the sectionals to set up the game of the year, or game of the century, as it was being billed. This was the game everyone had been waiting for, the only game that mattered. Addux Muncie. The rest was just dress rehearsal. As could be expected, there was huge betting action on the game. In addition to the big bucks and full paychecks being wagered, a source claims that a few pink slips and houses were on the line as well. At an Indianapolis gas station known to be the regular hangout of bookmakers, cars were packed to the brim days prior to the game. Muncie's squad was more than capable of keeping up with addicts. Their big man, a 6'6", strong, tough, and athletic scorer named John Casterlow, was one of the state's best players. And their guards, both first named Jimmy, were lauded for their long-distance shooting ability, which is impressive considering everyone in Indiana seemed to be able to shoot. The recorder had often worried about the level of support addicts would receive from Indianapolis. Although the city was desperate to break the curse, they questioned whether white Indianapolis would embrace the Tigers. There's a heartfelt story about how local cheerleaders organized a show of support for quote-unquote Indianapolis's team, the city's team. Each school sent a representative to the game to join the Addicts cheerleaders in rooting for the Tigers. They practiced the Addicts chants and moves to be prepared for the contest. 15,000 onlookers packed the bleachers of Butler Fieldhouse. In fact, as was often the occurrence, people would hide hours or even days prior to the game inside Butler Fieldhouse to assure themselves entry. Officials would have to search all closets and crevices in the arena to clear the fieldhouse before admitting the ticket holders. The game of the year was on, and it was everything Indiana had hoped for. And as with any classic battle between evenly matched teams, they traded jabs and haymakers early in the contest. Attic struck first and led the entire first quarter. Casterlow, Muncie's big man, dominated the second quarter as Muncie took a slim lead into halftime. The lead would seesaw back and forth throughout the second half. But as the game progressed, Oscar began to assert himself. And as we said before, he always observed and learned. He was light years ahead of other players mentally. When his defender moved up too close on his jump shot, he drove past them for a layup. When they brought a help defender, he found the open man. He figured out the spot on the floor he was having regular success from and would seek it out, drilling jumpers over overstretched hands. They built a slight four-point lead going into the final minute of the game. However, Casterlow is fouled. The first free throw is good, three-point game. The second free throw, off the rim. But Muncie tips in the rebound, one-point game. Now only 20 seconds left. Muncie puts on a full-court press to try to steal the ball. Addicts allows themselves to get trapped in the corner, the worst thing you can do against the press. The trapped player tries to dribble out of it, another decision that makes a coach want to pull his hair out. As the trap forces him further and further into the corner, the Addicts player eventually runs out of real estate, dribbling out of bounds. Muncie ball. Addicts fans are apoplectic. Muncie fans are in a state of pandemonium. And this is the tragedy of sports, as sometimes it can rip your heart right out of your throat. It's a zero-sum game. No matter how impressive the struggle is, 
one loose ball or unfortunate bounce, and you once again end up a footnote on someone else's triumph. Muncie has their own story. After getting their hearts broken the year before, now the stars were aligning for complete redemption. 11 seconds left, down one. Last year, they had to watch Bobby Plump and the Milan Miracle bury their dreams at the buzzer. Now they had clawed all the way back and had the ball. They could write their own history. Muncie pushes the ball up the court. The gym is in a state of hysteria. No one on the court can hear each other over the volume of the pack house losing its mind. Casterlo, the Muncie big man, positions himself under the basket for a rebound. Star guard Jimmy Hines runs off the screen and fades to the corner. His teammate and other star guard Jimmy delivers him a perfect pass. The corner was Jimmy's favorite spot and he'd been drilling jumpers all night. He sets his feet as the pass cruises into his hands. Only the ball never gets there. Oscar Robertson had crowded behind another player and jumps the pass, reading the play as it unfolds. He dribbles down the court as the clock falls towards zero. Oscar launches the ball into the air toward the rafters, securing a victory. He is immediately rushed by teammates and fans storming the court. There was an explosion of euphoria, not only in the gym, but up and down Indiana Avenue. Coach Crow would later say his only emotion that he felt was relief. Relief that he didn't let everyone down once again. We mentioned Oscar's ability to adapt and learn as the game went on. He also showed an innate ability to remain calm under the craziest of circumstances. Oscar's friends said years later on why Oscar made that play. It was because he was never caught up in the excitement. He never stopped thinking. Everyone else was watching and reacting. Oscar was thinking. He knew Muncie didn't have enough time to throw the ball in the low post to their best player. He knew Hines would fade the screen and break for the corner. On top of his 25 points that night, he saved the game with his brilliant basketball mind, knowing how a play was going to unfold before it happened. Addicts would not be a footnote in someone else's story. Finally, this was a story about them, about Indianapolis basketball. Days later, they dominated the state finals. For the first time, Indianapolis was home to the state champions. For the first time, an all-black school had won. Both droughts were over. The crazy song had echoed through the rafters of Butler Fieldhouse many times before, but this time it sounded a little bit sweeter. After the game, the players hopped onto the back of a fire truck, and followed by their fans, the party moved from Butler Fieldhouse to Indianapolis' famous Monument Circle, where the mayor gave Coach Crow a key to the city. From there, the party went back to Indiana Avenue, where a local park had a bonfire and the city celebrated throughout the night. On the same night of Attic's historic state championship win, a college player named Bill Russell would lead his San Francisco squad to become the first integrated team to win the college national championship. Bill Russell would go on to win 11 NBA championships in Boston and be regarded as one of the greatest players to ever play. Oscar himself would come back to Attucks for his senior year, and not only would he lead his team to another state championship, but they wouldn't lose a single game. Another record broken in the history books of Indiana basketball. Although this is the perfect place for the Addicts movie to end, the reality was unfortunately a bit more complicated. There's an old adage in coaching that winning covers up a lot of blemishes. Weaknesses and faults get overshadowed when the result is a win. However, in Oscar's case, it was the complete opposite. Winning had only magnified what his real place in Indiana society was. Unlike previous champions, 
The citywide celebration was not held downtown. Addicts appeared to be ushered to their part of the city, as if officials were worried about this particular fan base celebrating and causing problems in the white part of Indianapolis. The support of the entire city was a bit underwhelming as well, and leadership had failed to focus on allowing for a celebration and seemed to be more worried about preventing some form of a riot. Oscar would be severely hurt by this treatment. He often talks about how well-behaved his teammates were and how well-behaved the fan base was. They never caused any trouble at all, and despite this, he believed that they were treated like animals. Oscar and many of the other black athletes of this time period would have to bear the scars of Jim Crow America for many years to come. Oscar would have to continually deal with Jim Crow America during his college years. He would often be banned from restaurants and hotels during road trips while his white teammates were welcomed in. Bill Russell would deal with so much abuse from his hometown fans and neighbors that he never forgave the city of Boston. In Indianapolis, Officials and opponents would begin to complain that the very disadvantages addicts had to deal with were now unfair strengths. They got to play too many games at Butler Fieldhouse, so now it was a home court advantage come playoffs. They got to choose talent from all over the city. And while Jim Crow continued to fight against them, Crispus Addicts had broken through a wall that would never be repaired. Some things that are deserved are not always given, especially if you're from the west side of Indianapolis in the 1950s. Unfortunately, these things must be taken. Sometimes you have to jump the past and force your own place in history. Crispus Attucks proved, once and for all, that basketball belonged to the city as much as it did the farm towns. They proved that basketball is for everyone. That is their legacy. They overcame a society and system rigged to suppress them. And they not only thrived in this, but they dominated. Indiana basketball would never be the same again. Hoosierland would never see a player like Oscar, and they would never see a team like Addicts. So that's the story of Crispus Addicts basketball. When we look back on it, we want to ask a question of what lessons can be learned from this story. Well, one obvious lesson is the inspiration taken from the success and courage of these players and coaches. Crispus Addicts was continually given disadvantages, yet they found a way to succeed. And it also can be argued that the success of their basketball program ended up desegregating the schools in Indianapolis. Because Addicts was so good, white high schools began taking black players that they had previously ignored. They did this in an effort to compete. What also stands out is the importance of role models and the support system of a community. Oscar and other Addicts students continually talk about how much they enjoyed their time there. Everyone was on their team, helping them, cheering them on, and being there for them in difficult times. Oscar and his brothers would grow up swelling with pride whenever a black fighter like Joe Lewis would win on the radio. As they grew up and became athletes of their own, younger students throughout the West Side would look up to the Robertson brothers as their own local heroes. Another thing that's important to remember is that especially during this time period and other tumultuous times in American history, we need to realize that the supposed golden ages were often not golden for everyone. We'll turn back once again to the movie Hoosiers. There's another noteworthy line that I want to recite. The athletic director is talking to Coach Dale about their star player, Jimmy Chitwood. Dale has yet to see him play, and he dismisses the arguments about how good he is and how he's needed on the team. But the AD says to him, In the 40 years of watching the best this state has to offer, I've never seen a player like Jimmy Chitwood. Though the name and the character in this movie were fictional, or very loosely based on Bobby Plump. The real Jimmy Chitwood did exist. An Indiana boy that was a basketball savant that grew up perfecting his craft on makeshift baskets and dreary gyms. But his name was Oscar Robertson, and he was the best any Hoosier would ever have the privilege of seeing. Now, did Hoosiers promote a white versus black agenda? Probably. They didn't need to do that, as the story itself was inspirational enough. However, I have some complicated feelings on this movie, as many others do. Oscar Robertson had a problem with how the final game was portrayed. However, his brother Flap and Coach Crow felt differently, as they actually took small roles in the movie. I grew up worshipping this movie. But there's an alternate reality where this movie is about Crispus Attucks. And why wasn't that made? And I think it's slightly more justified to make this movie, and perhaps there's still time. Uh, let's go Ryan Coogler. Or maybe Jordan Peele. But maybe not Jordan Peele because I don't want it to be a horror movie. Anyway, before we sign off, 
we want to leave you with a little bit about what you can find in Indianapolis today. If you ever find yourself wandering around and looking for places to go that pertain to this story, the Lockfield Gardens were eventually torn down. In its place, luxury condominiums and rental buildings, a sign of the new boom of the urban landscape across America. The Dust Bowl courts that groomed and raised the West Side players no longer exist. There's not even a marker of where they once stood. The old neighborhood of Frog Island was demolished as well, becoming part of the expanding hospital facilities. Like in most cities, this is how it works. Staples in the community age and are torn down, making way for the next urgent need or fashionable trend. But for now, these two important symbols of Indiana still stand. Butler Fieldhouse still marches on, home to Butler University basketball. What once was the largest arena in the country is now considered a smaller, more intimate venue. And the Crispus Attic School, despite many transitions of its use, remains active. Within the school is the Crispus Attic's Museum, which has regular visiting hours. If you want to venture away from the city, about 45 minutes outside in a town called Knightsville is the Hoosier Gym, a community center where the movie was filmed. It remains decorated for the movie, with props and signs and even the soundtrack pumping through its speakers. Basketballs are on site, and you can shoot some hoops and even rent out the gym for the day. Finally, Indianapolis hosts its fair share of basketball games and tournaments, college tournaments, the Final Four, and many others. Naptown knows basketball, and they know how to host a basketball event. Special thanks to the production team of Van Vorst Films, who produce and edit this podcast. Until next time, thank you for joining us tonight, and hopefully we'll see you in the future. <laughs>